things. Just, uh, just for reference, uh, Zetterberg is on a three-game goal streak. Did you see Datsuk's goal last night? No, I missed it. I was at the Pistons game. Uh, he totally showed up, uh, Zetterberg. I'm sorry. But I just I just wanted to let you know that I did pick Team Sweden to win the gold medal, and they did win. Shocking. <laughs> so. well, Tooting her own horn, Stephanie Nicholas. Would you like to make a prediction the for the uh, March Madness? No, I haven't done enough. <laughs> North Carolina. Guessing it. <laughs> you haven't North met. Carolina is not going to win it. They're not going to uh, repeat. Not with that team. So which... which uh, it hasn't appeared to you yet. Which number one seed do you think has the best chance of going all the way? And which one do you think is the first one to lose? Uh, Memphis is the first to lose. I got UConn and Duke in the final. I, I was thinking of UConn. I said, I said UConn to win it all. Yeah, I've... As much I think, as a paint, yeah. I think LSU beats Duke. No. And, uh, uh, but I think UConn wins Oh... The Duke bracket is the hardest one. It's the one that I just can't figure out right now. Because I don't think Duke can go all the way, but I can't see a team beating them. Yeah, but yeah. They're playing okay. in Atlanta, so I mean, they're not too far yeah, away from they, uh, Durham. They've been doing poorly, and it just it's a question of whether <laughs> J.J. Redick is on or not. Yeah. I'll just get, how I'll they've been that. playing. Like When you're playing a team like Miami and you only win by two points, there's a problem. Yeah, we even beat them by twenty something, didn't we? Speaking of problems, I just want to uh, go back to, <laughs> to Lake's point that uh, Tulane's not a football power, and mentioned that while King was there, he did have an undefeated final season in the uh, Conference USA. That's right. Yeah, what mm-hmm. were they ranked at the end of that like season? Ten. That's pre- that's pretty good. That's decent. I'll just say about the tournament. I think that you know they've never had a year where all four number ones made the final four, and I don't think <laughs> that this is that year. Even though yeah. I, Clark Kellogg said that, I don't know if he was joking, yeah. but uh, it seems like if there was one year where you would not say that, yeah. this is it. Given that only one of them even comes in on a winning streak, so I, I, they're I, definitely not all making it. I don't think Villanova makes it either. I think Duke and UConn are the only two. I, th- I have to agree. Well, Villanova has a has a tough uh, matchup in the second round. They're playing the winner of Arizona Wisconsin, and those are two tournament tested teams. I take I take Wisconsin over Villanova right now. No, nah, not uh, in Philly. But uh, we'll have plenty oh, of time we, we this, this week to uh, <laughs> dissect the brackets. But uh, we don't have any more time today. So uh, for everybody here in the studio, I am Steve Lake saying good night, Michigan. This has been a production of WCBN Sports, 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor. And then right back to the Europe. He will beat it to Cogliano. Cogliano puts a shot on, he scores! Andrew Cogliano at the top of the far faceoff circle. Ritz a shot that I don't think Dominic McCary saw. And beats him over the left shoulder. Wolverines with another power play goal. They are back in front, 3-2. to two. You're listening to WCBN in Ann Arbor. A square, y'all. This is Jake and Jake at WBCN. John Ted. That's WCBN. WBCN. WCBN. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ann Arbor. Yeah, I was there during the 60s when the universe met something. All right, so hi guys out there in Ann Arbor. Now we're Yep. Jake and Jake.
I'm on the movie. Yeah. Okay. Right. I got T-shirts, nine bumper sticks. Good old reliable shaky Jake. Welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Jim Dwyer will be uh, with us. Oh, hopefully next week. I've been a little... It's difficult to coordinate our schedules. Um, but uh, in any event, uh, oh, a variety of things to talk about. I wanted to sort of uh, just finish off from uh, where I was at last week about this... Uh, study regarding NutraSuite um, and wanted to uh, credit Melanie Warner uh, of the New York Times. This article was dated, by the way, um, February 12th of uh, 2006. There's an incredibly long website, by the way, in the article uh, that will give you more uh, information about this uh, study uh, and uh, what the FDA is going to do about it. But just to quickly review, I, what I found interesting about this and wh- why I talked about it were the connections between these high-ranking officials uh, in the C.D. Searle uh, Corporation uh, that developed uh, Aspartame, which uh, is better known as NutraSuite, and uh, Reagan administration officials and the hasty w- uh, way in which the FDA approved this uh, drug back in the early 80s. Uh, Conflicts of interest abound, of course, and um, as the uh, medical doctor pointed out uh, significantly, I think there were th- three important things, the conflicts of interest, the ethical uh, lapses and uh, connections between this corporation and high-ranking Reagan administrations. I think the second important thing is the uh, shaky science in which uh, C.D. Searle conducted uh, these rats uh, studies. Uh, Not only did they use a much smaller sample than Dr. Mirando Sofridi of uh, Bologna, Italy, uh, but as he pointed out, and I will just read the quote once again, quote, you have 75% of cancer diagnoses for people who are 55 years or older. So if you truncate the experiments at 110 weeks and the rats are supposed to survive until 150 to 160 weeks, it means you avoid the development of cancer at a time when cancer would start likely to start occurring. So the important thing was that Searle actually killed these rats after two years. And as the article notes, these rats were, quote, sacrificed at the human equivalent of age 53, thus, I think, marginalizing the scientific validity of their studies. And then finally, uh, quoting a professor of psychiatry at Northeastern Ohio Medicine who reviewed studies regarding NutraSuite back in the 1980s in medical journals, He pointed out that in an analysis of 166 articles published in medical journals from 1980 to 1985, Dr. Ralph Walton of the College of Medicine in Northeastern Ohio found that of all 74 studies that were financed by the industry attested to the sweetener safety, of the 92 independently funded articles, 84 Uh, identified adverse health effects, 
Whenever you have studies that were not funded by the industry, some sort of problem is identified, said Dr. Walton. So I think that this is another fascinating example of the shaky science in which NutraSweet was approved back in the 1980s. This, by the way, is a $500 million annual industry here in the United States. And, of course, it is uh, used in all sorts of products. And as I've pointed out in past episodes of Gray Matters, NutraSweet uh, breaks down at high temperatures and actually turns into a poison formaldehyde, if you can believe it. And young children in particular are very vulnerable if they consume uh, four or five diet sodas in a day. Uh, so uh, watch those NutraSweet drinks for your children, please. Now, the new Harper's Index is out, and uh, today uh, we heard uh, the President of the United States amazingly claim that uh, progress is being made in Iraq, and as he put it from uh, the uh, terrible uh, bombing of the mosque a couple of weeks ago, he, as he put it, he said Iraqis looked into the abyss and have responded. Well, I would argue that the entire Iraq war is an abyss. And with the passing of Slobodan Milosevic, something that I'm not going to talk about tonight because of the interesting conflicts uh, and controversy surrounding his death, uh, there are investigations underway. He, of course, is being tried at the uh, International War Crimes Tribunal at The Hague. And I think that uh, after Bush and Tony Blair uh, depart from office, uh, this is where they should be tried. Um, Lewis Laffham, who's uh, one of the main editors of the Harper's Index, has an outstanding article in the uh, March edition of that fine publication in which he presents the case for impeachment of the president. There actually has been, by the way, an resolution introduced into Congress by Michigan Democrat John Conyers. John Conyers, of course, is the longtime Detroit uh, representative who is the ranking minority member of the House Judiciary Committee. And in this article, Louis Laffam presents the case why um, George Bush should be impeached. Um, and, of course, he focuses on the war. I think that the footnotes in this article are particularly uh, uh, apropos of uh, some of the um, arguments for impeachment and the basic uh, duplicity and dishonesty of the entire war in Iraq. Incidentally, by the way, it's important to realize that the Iraq war, as well as Afghanistan, are being funded by emergency supplemental bills. Uh, this is a very troubling development from an article that appeared in the New York Times back in October 2nd of 2005. Edmund L. Andrews uh, writes about this emergency spending as a way of life. Of course, the gist of this article is were about the tragic uh, consequences of the uh, hurricanes uh, that had recently hit uh, both... Uh, Texas, uh, Hurricane Rita, and, of course, Katrina, which uh, mostly affected New Orleans, but uh, certainly devastated large chunks of Mississippi as well. And in it, he has a graph showing uh, the disturbing trend of this supplemental budget spending 
which last year totaled over $150 billion in fiscal year 2005. And in it, he notes, the good news is that the budget deficit declined in fiscal year uh, about to end from $412 billion to $330 billion. I should add, for the record, by the way, that's the third heaviest federal deficit on record. So uh, this notion that uh, we're making significant progress on the deficit under the uh, Republican Congress and under President Bush is uh, simply false. Uh, As he notes, tax revenues rose 15%, partly because of big increases uh, as a result of corporate profits and partly because a major tax break for a business expired last year. The bad news is that the overall outlays keep climbing, propelled by Medicare, Medicaid, farm subsidies, normal military spending, and spending on the war. As he notes, in theory, emergency spending bills are for one-time unforeseeable calamities. However, Mr. Bush has financed the entire war in Iraq, as well as the war in Afghanistan, with emergency supplemental requests that totaled $248 billion over the last three years, with no sign yet of troop reductions. And the costs are likely to exceed $80 billion in 2006. He also then goes on to quote Representative Jeff Flake, uh, who in recent weeks has emerged as one of the Republican hawks on the deficit. And as he notes, we've had, quote, very little support from the leadership on budget rules. Mr. Flake continued, we're even giving away the rhetoric. We've replaced the Freedom to Farm bill with the Farm Security Act. The first one cut price supports. The second one increased them. And he, of course, was active in uh, deposing Tom DeLay and, of course, was dismayed by the fact that John Boehner uh, is now the majority leader in the House, given his connections to Tom DeLay and lobbying. But getting back to Lewis Laffam's uh, article about the uh, in real dishonesty that we're, that we're seeing from the administration's continued uh, public relations uh, attempt to spin the war in Iraq in a positive way. We heard comments last week from Rumsfeld, and he, of course, is at the heart of this uh, interesting uh, group in the Defense Department that was pushing for a war with Iraq back in 98. In footnote number two, as Laffam notes, in January 98, the conservative, neoconservative Washington think tank, the Project for the New American Century, among whose founding members were Dick Cheney, signed a letter to Bill Clinton demanding, quote, the removal of Saddam Hussein's regime from power with a strong-minded, quote, willingness to undertake military action. Together with Rumsfeld, six of the 17 other signatories became members of the Bush administration. Elliot Abrams, now Mr. Bush's Deputy National Security Advisor, Richard Armitage, Deputy Secretary of State from 2001 to 2005, John Bolton, now U.M. Ambassador, Richard Pearl, Chairman of the Defense Policy Board from 2001 to 2003. By the way, he had to resign due to conflicts of interest regarding investments and uh, business that was pending uh, before that board. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, who's now 
Um, he, of course, was Deputy Secretary of Defense from 2001 to 2005 and now is in charge of the World Bank. Uh, Robert Zellick, now um, Deputy Secretary of State. That's very interesting. Uh, I think, interestingly, also, uh, the current Iraqi ambassador, Khalizad, signed that document, uh, Laugham, uh, and I'll confirm that next week, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he also signed that Project for a New American Century. And, uh, of course, Donald Rumsfeld uh, was pushing this idea early in uh, November, uh, September of 2001 for a war with Iraq, for instance, on September 20th, Douglas Feith, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, drafted a memo suggesting that in retaliation for the 9-11 attacks, the United States should consider hitting terrorists outside the Middle East in the initial offensive or perhaps deliberately seeking a Al-Qaeda target, non-Al-Qaeda target like Iraq. Um, this, of course, was discussed in the Bush administration, and of course we also uh, know from the uh, history that um, removing Saddam Hussein and acquiring Iraqi uh, oil assets was part of the very first discussions uh, in, the Reagan, uh, in the Bush administration, um, as we found out from Paul O'Neill. Uh, and his memoirs, uh, for instance, he states, quote, from the beginning there was a conviction that Saddam Hussein was a very bad person and that he needed to go. All it was about was a f finding a way to do it. Uh, and uh, history has confirmed that. Donald Rumsfeld, uh, at the very first meeting of the National Security Council on January 30th, 2001, by the way, this is well before 9-11. Most of the people in the room discussed the possibility of a preemptive blitzkrieg against Baghdad. In March, the Pentagon circulates a document entitled, quote, Foreign Suitors for Iraqi Oil Contracts. And the supporting maps indicate that properties of interest to various European governments and American corporations. Six months later, early in the afternoon of 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld tells his staff to fetch intelligence briefings and, quote, the best info fast, go massive, sweep it all up, things related and not related that will justify an attack on Iraq. One of the other interesting uh, footnotes in the uh, Lewis Laffam article concerns this um, public relations fraud that the Bush administration, in conjunction with Tony Blair, perpetrated before the public back in September of 2002, in which uh, uh, Tony Blair stands in front of television cameras at Camp David with President Bush to say that, quote, a new report from the IAEA shows new activity in Iraq's nuclear weapons since, uh, at uh, nuclear weapons sites. On September 8th, National Security Advisor Rice appears on late edition of Wolf Blitzer to picture a mushroom cloud in America's future. And Secretary Rumsfeld on Face the Nation invites Bob Schieffer to, quote, imagine 9-11 with weapons of mass destruction, quote, unquote. And on the same day, President, Vice President Cheney 
uh, shows up on Meet the Press to assure Tim Russert that, quote, first of all, no decision has yet been made to launch military options. The president stays on both messages. Informing reporters gathered at the Oval Office at a photo op on September 25th of 2002 while discussing the war on terror, quote, you can't distinguish between al-Qaeda and Saddam. And then on October 1st, after meeting with members of Congress, quote, of course I haven't made up my mind if we're going to war in Iraq. In the footnote, Laugham notes, collaborating was a team effort between March 2002 and March 2004. Various high-ranking administration officials made 200 and 37 false or misleading statements, 55 of them from President Bush himself, concerning the connection between Saddam and al-Qaeda. This is a devastating uh, report, and of course, <laughs> impeachment of the president is not going to happen uh, be, uh, at this point because of the control of Congress by the Republican administration. But, of course, there are a variety of other very interesting um, facts starting to emerge. Paul Bremer, who, of course, um, was the uh, substitute <laughs> viceroy of Iraq, um, appointed uh, by President Bush in May of 2003 after the invasion, um, has written memoirs, and, of course, uh, <laughs> His perspective is interesting. He's part of this uh, incompetent uh, provisional CAP government uh, that has done all sorts of very shaky things. For instance, from Dollars and Cents, the magazine, uh, dated July-August of 2004, Lorenzo Nencioli writes the following. The, uh, in May of 2003, the UN and other international bodies formed an oversight body, the IA. MB, the International Advisory and Monitoring Board, I am and a number of nonprofit organizations in Iraq maintain that the board's attempt to oversee those expenditures have been thwarted by an uncooperative and secretive CPA. Um, this is regarding Iraqi oil revenue. Quote, it has been impossible to tell with accuracy what CPA has been doing with Iraq's money, noted the UK-based Christian Aid, whose June 2004 report estimates that $4 billion of Iraqi oil revenue has not been accounted for by the CPA. Another organization uh, uh, monitoring the CPA, Iraqi Revenue Watch, cautioned early of last year that its estimate of over $7 billion of DFL money was being spent without any independent management or supervision. Both groups, as well as I am, have noted that the CPA does not meter Iraq oil extraction, a standard industry practice, making it impossible to accurately track production or determining how much oil has been smuggled prior to refining and shipping. Despite the fog surrounding CPA business practices, there is at least one clear example of how CPA did operate. It used DFI money to award three no-bid contracts to the Halliburton Corporation, totaling $1.4 billion. Uh, that from Dollar and Cents, uh, dated August, uh, July-August of 2004. Uh, some time ago, but shortly, uh, well, uh, 
Paul Bremer was still on the job, so to speak. Um, it's interesting, from his memoirs, Bremer writes, uh, and I'm quoting here from an article by Peter Galberth in the March 9th edition of the New York Review of Books, Bremer uh or, or uh, Peter Galbraith concludes, much of the Iraq fiasco can be directly attributed to Bush's shortcomings as a leader. Having decided to invade Iraq, he failed to make sure there was adequate planning for the post-war period. He never settled bitter dis- policy disputes amongst his principal advisors over how post-war Iraq would be governed, and he allowed competing elements of his administration to pursue diametrically opposed policies at nearly the same time. He used jobs in this coalition provisional authority to reward political loyalists who lacked professional competence, regional experience, language skills, and in some cases, common sense. Most of all, he conducted his Iraq policy with an arrogance not matched by political will or military power. Let's remember, by the way, that it's on July 2nd of 2003 when Bush famously told al-Qaeda to bring them on. Um, At last count, there's over 2,300 dead American soldiers. There's over 30,000 Iraqi civilians. The sectarian violence that now 70% of Americans assume will uh, lead to a civil war is not uh, waning. Um, It waxes, it wanes. Um, But the casualty figures continue to increase, and progress is not being made. Another strange thing about the president, and of course this bring him on is an example of this hubris and immaturity of the president of the United States. At the time, by the way, less than 200 American soldiers had died in Iraq. Uh, So it shows that the actual occupation uh, of Iraq is what was not planned for. But it's uh, rather remarkable. Uh, Bremer notes, and I'm quoting here from Galbraith again, quoting Bremer. Bremer says that Bush, quote, was as vigorous and decisive in person as he appeared on television. But, in fact, he gives an account of a superficial and weak leader. He had lunch with the president before leaving for Baghdad, a meeting joined by Dick Cheney and the national security team. But no decision seems to have been made on any of the major issues concerning Iraq's future. Instead, Bremer got a blanket grant of authority that he clearly enjoyed exercising. The president's direction seemed to have been limited to such slogans as, quote, we're not going to fail, unquote, and pace yourself. Jerry. Uh, This is fascinating. Uh, The President of the United States um, is telling Paul Bremer to pace himself. Um, I don't know how much pacing the President has been doing uh, in the White House regarding this disastrous decision, but it, it continues. In Bremer's account, the President was seriously interested in one issue, whether the leaders of the government that followed CPA would publicly thank the United States for the invasion. There is no evidence that he cared about the specific questions that counted. Would the new prime minister have a broad base of support? Would he be able to bridge Iraq's ethnic divisions? What political values should he have? Instead, Bush had only one demand. Quote, it's important to have somebody who's willing to stand up and thank the American people 
for their sacrifice in liberating Iraq, quote-unquote. According to Bremer, he came back to this single point three times in the same meeting. Similarly, Ghazi al-Yawar, an obscure Sunni Arab businessman, became Bush's candidate for president of the interim Iraq government because, as Bremer reports, Bush had been favorably impressed with his open thanks to the coalition. In other words, the qualification to become the first president of Iraq in this uh, so-called provisional government was a willingness to publicly thank America for invading Iraq. This is mind-boggling and is uh, probably reminiscent of some of the puppet governments uh, that operated uh, both uh, during the fascist wars of aggression during World War II and the communist um, Eastern European governments that the uh, Soviet Union, of course, was always interested in receiving thanks for. Uh, So this is very reminiscent of the totalitarian concept of America's Operation Iraqi Freedom and it's something that Lewis Latham does talk about extensively in his very good article in the last uh, edition of Harper's in uh, Harper's Magazine. Now, a couple of other things from Harper's, just uh, to sort of change subjects uh, briefly here. Uh, it says the number of U.S. counties where more than a fifth of the residents are prison inmates, 21. Number of those that are in Texas, 10. So maybe in all of the uh, interesting... Um, population data that uh, is used to uh, determine congressional representation. It's quite interesting that, of course, I'm sure that the prisoners are counted as people for census purposes, population representation. But in, of course, many states, they're not allowed to vote. Uh, Sort of similar to the uh, two-thirds concept that uh, exists in the original copy of the United States Constitution. Uh, Some other interesting things. Number of suicide bombings known to have been carried out by the Iranians, zero. A minimum uh, number of times that Frederick Douglass was beaten in what is now Donald Rumsfeld vacation.